Hello, Catherine here. If you're listening to my podcast because you're a fan of wintering, the good news is that my new book, Enchantment, is available now. It's a book about how we can find a way to reconnect with a world that's sometimes hard to live in and even to find magic there. It's available in all good bookshops and please support your local indie if you can. For more information, you can go to katherine-may.com forward slash enchantment. Happy reading. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi everyone, welcome to the Wintering Sessions. I'm Catherine May and I'm making a pot of tea, which feels like about all I can do at the moment. I just keep coming back and making pots of tea. Today's, as it often is in the afternoon, is jasmine. Dragon jasmine pearls, my favorite. It's the tea I make when I want to feel soothed. And there's a really particular reason that jasmine tea makes me feel soothed. It's because when I started university, I drove there with H and my mum and got into my room, unpacked all my stuff. And then there was this terrible moment when none of us knew what to do and my mum suggested that H and I went into town and bought some supplies and so that's what we did we went and walked down to the high street and we bought really stupid things (laughs) we didn't know what to buy for ourselves 
And we ended up in the Wittard's tea shop, which anyone English will know is like the world's least practical grocery store. It only sells fancy tea. And it's not even all that fancy. Anyway, that's another story. But we bought a teapot and a packet of jasmine tea. And then they both went home. And I was left on my own to get to know everybody else on the corridor. And those people are now some of my best friends in the world. So it didn't turn out badly. But what I do remember is that first week making pots of jasmine tea for people. It was something that I could offer. And so when people came to my room, I'd make them jasmine tea and hope that that was something distinctive that I could offer. And weirdly, I came to associate that really distinctive scent of jasmine tea with... I don't know, like a strange mix of emotions, actually, with feeling unsettled, but finding a way through it. It's not comforting in itself. It's kind of almost edgy. And it brings back that feeling for me, that mix of fear and anxiety and excitement and possibility and trying to do a thing that makes you feel soothed. I always used to take it with a little slice of lemon too. I'm not sure about that anymore. I think that might undervalue the innate beauty of jasmine tea. Anyway, I'm telling you this because I know that so many people listening will be feeling hugely unsettled at the moment. I feel like the Roe versus Wade decision in America has just turned every woman I know upside down and plenty of men too although I would say not enough of them frankly but maybe that's something for another time too but that connects fantastically with my guest this week Emma Dabbery who is one of those people When that news broke and I was dealing with my unsettled feelings, I went to her social media feeds to see what she thought, as I so often do, because she's such an astonishingly clear and certain voice that cuts through so much of our discourse. I love that there is this person out there who is so nakedly clever and critical and kind of fearless and who thinks about the overall balance of things in such a crisp way. I was thrilled when she agreed to an interview and I think you'll love listening to her too. So this interview was recorded before the Roe versus Wade decision. We don't touch on that at all. Maybe it's a welcome space from the before times. But I think you'll really enjoy it anyway. We talk about some serious stuff and we talk about some light stuff too. Least of all, my early struggles with entering the British middle class and learning their conventions. I hope it will give you a laugh and I hope it will make you think. I'll see you out the other side. Thank you.
Emma, welcome to the Wintering Sessions. I am so chuffed to be talking to you. I'm such a fan of yours. You know, like when it's a real thrill to meet someone. Hi. <laughs> oh my gosh, the, feel, the feeling's like so mutual. Um, I'm actually just like kind of grinning, <laughs> grinning stupidly, being like, I feel the same way. Um, so, so yeah, I'm looking forward to our conversation. That's why I run a podcast, so I get to chat to really cool people. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, you know, ready-made social life that people get invited to and a really formal way. <laughs> so we came to the idea of this conversation because you wrote a beautiful post a while ago about learning to come to terms with winter, having mm. always been a summer person. And I think I'm gradually learning to come to terms with summer. So I think we're, we're like <laughs> moving on reverse planes. And it's been really hot the last few days. So I am very ill at ease at the moment because I just <laughs> do not deal with the heat at all. And I hate the flood of light that comes at this time of year. Like, I don't know what to do with myself in it. I want some shade. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and also I'm like permanently sunburnt at this time of year too. Aww. So yeah, I know it's pathetic. Um, <laughs> so I would like to start by asking you, tell me about why summer is fantastic before we even think about winter. Like what, what is it you love about this time of year? So, you know, where I'm at now is I really feel that I'm into the seasons and I wouldn't like to live somewhere. I feel quite strongly that were I to live, say, in somewhere like California, that was like, you know, kind of a perennial summer, that mm. I'd actually, I personally would go mad because um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I definitely need like gloom and dark, <laughs> darkness and shade. I think it's just that to live in a, a climate that is kind of gloomy and grey all of the time or nearly all of the mm. time or where there are potentially years and certainly months where there's just kind of no sustained sunshine. I yeah. think it's also like quite, quite detrimental, but I think I do really need, a, I really need the balance. I think yeah. I need, yeah. I need, I need seasons or I like seasons. I used to um, have a Ghanaian friend who, you know, it's summer all year round where she was from. Mm -hmm. And I, I couldn't stop asking her, <laughs> like, I, I couldn't get my head around the idea of it. Like, well, what's it like? Like, how do, how do you notice when it's Christmas? Mm -hmm. What's the, what changes are signalled? And she's like, you know, there is no change. It's exactly mm -hmm. the same. The days are the same length. The weather's the same. And we make the changes, like we bring the culture to the weather. Whereas, and she said, like you guys, like you're, you're kind of really dependent on the movement of the year to yeah. guide you. And she, she found us all like quite surprisingly changeable, I think, as people almost, because we were so moved by the way the year was changing rather than really, I, I still can't get my head around what it would be like. Determined now. by outside forces rather than having yeah. more like autonomy. It's so funny that you use, um, that you reference Ghana because I think I actually really had this realisation about myself. Now this realisation far predates me liking the cold. Um, I right. have to just pre preface it with that. Me liking the cold and actually kind of craving the cold is, this is a very recent development. But Ghana, I, I lived in Ghana for about six months 
many, many years ago, about 15 years ago. And um, it was actually there where I realized after maybe two months or so of, you know, just like constant heat and warmth and sunshine that I was actually craving the particularly like damp (laughs) Of Ireland. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> and I was just like, I actually need to go to like, not even Dublin, like where I come from. I was like, I need to go to, I need to be in the West Coast. I need to be yeah. in the West of Ireland. And I was like, what is wrong with me? Like I've literally spent my life complaining <laughs> about that, trying to flee from it. And now I feel myself like craving it. So like when I left Ghana, I went to like Mayo, Mayo and somewhere else. I went to the West Coast basically for about 10 days. And even though it was the summer, it rained. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Of course it did. It was, it was occasionally, regularly, like kind of gloomy. Um, Uh, And, and, you know, damp, but also so like richly, like saturated in a particular Mm. way that I felt like my eyes really were just like like drinking that up and like the fine misty rain on my face I was like oh man like I didn't realize how much I have actually been kind of shaped by this environment like (laughs) well I wouldn't have liked the cold at at, at that stage so yeah that was still a good decade actually liking the cold but definitely seeking out that kind of that that wetness that's amazing because actually islands damp is such a particular damp like it is part of how mystical it can feel it, it's that it's that kind of mood that that the damp mm-hmm. creates and that deep mm-hmm. deep green and all those wildflowers in every lawn that you find in Ireland which you don't find in my part of England is special it's that even though it's kind of a bit unpleasant and makes everything you know it's difficult to dry your washing <laughs> did you know that that kind of miserly uh, rain and, and what it does to your skin is called a Cornish facial really yeah I didn't know that but I find it um yeah like it makes sense actually I was in rural Ireland like last year this old man it was that kind of weather uh, even though again it was the summer and um (laughs) this old man was just like oh this weather is wonderful for your complexion no matter what color you are (laughs) I was just like thank you it's like an Evian spray, you know, but <laughs> built into the environment. It's supposed to be amazing for your skin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I definitely <laughs> know I was like craving it. But I think like it's because I feel like because my relationship to Ireland was um so like yeah, I like I grew up there and well, I was born there, grew up there, and my mum, um, my mum's side of the family is like entirely, entirely Irish. But because my dad is Nigerian and because that was such an anomaly, like when I was a small child in the 1980s and like a teenager in the 90s, my sense of belonging there was like very complicated. And Mm. I was, you know, kind of like always being told that that I wasn't really Irish. And then I honestly think that really had like an impact on my relationship to the landscape and to to the we- to the to my environment and, and to the weather. Mm. And I was mm. just like, oh my God, well, like the other side of my family is from this like really hot, like warm place. And yeah, maybe I'm better suited kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, like, I'm meant yeah, to be and yeah. like I'm brown and like I don't like I don't go like like I I like I need vitamin D and I just I should have actually I should be in the tropics. And like what kind of perverse 
punishment has been meted out on me that I'm just, <laughs> that, I, that I'm me and I'm here. And yeah. so alone. But yeah, as I, when I left Ireland, I think that's when I realized actually like how much like that, that weather and that environment had actually shaped me. And I think mm. had a big impact like on my, on who I am and actually yeah. how much I yeah. crave to be in that kind of weather sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, but it, it does make sense. Cause I think, I think when you're younger, you're like, well, I don't know about you, but I was very absolute about things. And I thought I would find my place in the world and that that would be a definite thing. And as I've got older, I've realized that I'm just always craving change. Like I, I get to one mm. place and I get nostalgic about somewhere else, or I <laughs> think about the next thing. And I can imagine, you know, having those feelings when I was younger and, 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 you know, experiencing racism as you did when you were younger and thinking, okay, so this isn't my place then, you know, there must be a place. It makes, it makes a load of sense. And and I know you've written that you, you kind of got out of Ireland as soon as you could really, and, and moved on and, and tried to find that place, I guess. Yeah. And then like, exactly, completely, like, as you're saying, um, I think like what I've, what I've really come to not just know, but like fully understand as I've gotten older is that kind of perpetual quest for finding the right geographical location. Like I think we'll never, if if it's motivated by like, you know, something, something that's internal and there's yeah. an internal disconnect or you're looking for that place, you know, where you think everything will just fall into place and there'll be kind of like a magic formula that you fit and you belong. Um, I think you could spend your whole life like <laughs> looking, looking for that place. And um, I think it really, to an extent, not entirely, but I think a lot of it is internal and it's something that's internal, but mm-hmm. kind of looking for an external solution to it. I, I recently reread one of Nella Larson's books called Quicksand and it's about, um, I've not read that one. Yeah. It's, um, so I, I passing is better known particularly yeah. because it's been made into a movie, but I, yeah, this course that I was teaching in Villanova, we were looking at the, it was like a comparative literary course, literature course. And we were looking at the relationship between the Irish literary, Irish literary revival and the Harlem <laughs> Renaissance. It's impossible to say. <laughs> I know it's probably tongue twister. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we were looking at quicksand and I, I reread that, that book as part of that course. And um I was, yeah, I was just really struck by, um, I mean, it's written a hundred years ago, but it is this woman who is, um, has a Danish mother and, uh, a black father. And it's in like, she's in 1920s America. And it's basically like her search through from everywhere, like from the kind of rural South to Harlem at the height of the Renaissance to Copenhagen, where, um, the other, where her mother's family comes from her search to kind of like find the place where she believes, you know, everything's just going to fall into place. And inevitably like it, it, yeah, it it never happens. She never, she never finds it. There's dramatic irony, even in that setup, isn't there? You're you're never going to find that place. That's just not how it happens. (laughs) But then, you know, there is, there's always a part of me that thinks I would be better off living like in a much more rural location where it's really quiet and I wouldn't have to see people. (laughs) And as soon as I get to one of those places on holidays I'm really bored within five days and I'm like right where are the people what am I doing I I don't think we know ourselves very well really 
yeah, like I, I, I don't know how I would, I, I would fare in that environment. I think like when I was younger, it wouldn't have even remotely appealed. Like it would have just seemed like, like a, a hellish possibility. Um, yeah. Whereas now I, so to- I totally like see the appeal of that kind of, um, of that kind of existence. I think it would be probably good for us all to, you know, kind of maybe to, to, to be in that kind of yeah. environment or setup for, I don't know, like a week or two at least a year. <laughs> but I think for me, that would be quite adequate. Yeah. Yeah, that would be enough. I've just left London though after like 20 plus years. Oh, really? I'm living there. Yeah. So are you still in a city or are you, have you no, changed completely? No, I'm not that far from you actually. I'm on the oh, are you? coast. <laughs> yeah. And actually how I, um, how I came across wintering was I was in like one of my local bookshops and, um, ah. I picked it up at the, um, <laughs> and, um, I was like, oh, that looks intriguing. I was just thinking that, but then before I, I didn't say anything and the, the woman who worked there was just like, oh my God, this, this book is like amazing. Like you have to read it. Oh, that's and nice. <laughs> I thought it, you were American and I thought it was an American book just because I just saw New York Times bestseller. Yeah. Um, yeah. on the front. And I was just like, oh, is she American? Is it an American book? And she was like, no, she's like local, basically. <laughs> I was like, really? I was like, I have to read this. So yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm local, local as well. I've lived here like all my life, not in Whitstable, but further along the, the river. Um, so I'm like, I am truly a Kent native. I, I oh. can't imagine living anywhere else. I'm so local. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I did manage to move away briefly for university, but you know, it's really funny. I, I'm always really curious about what it would be like to live in another place, like a different country or even the other side of the, of this country. But I've got this really strong sense that I'm, I belong here, even though I love other places. And I, I mean, maybe it's just a complete lack of courage and opportunity so far, I guess, but I can't imagine moving around. I still, I still can't picture it somehow. Oh my goodness. Like if you are where you are from and you feel that you just really, really belong there, I think, yeah, <laughs> like that's, that's, that's what so many people are searching for. I don't think you need to, I don't <laughs> yeah, need it's to true. <laughs> don't it's all good. <laughs> like I miss Ireland like so, mm. like so intensely. I don't know. Like it it feels weird for me. I'm really happy where I am now, like more so than, yeah, more so than I've been, like I think in a lot of places, like I really feel, I really do feel like very content here, but at the same time, like I really, really like pine for like, for Ireland. Yeah. The thought of like never living there again is quite hard to, to countenance, but then it's like, would I uproot my, I don't know, like my, so my my children were like born in London, but um yeah okay here so. now, which is quite close to London, and also on their dad's side, they're actually have been in this part of Kent for like generations, so they're right. also quite connected to here yeah for generations. It's just so fascinating how particular our sense of place is because like when I I moved to Whitstable fifteen years ago. And it took me ages to feel like I belong here. And, I, you know, I moved here because I'd always wanted to live by the sea. Mm-hmm. Um, but I moved from the really working class area of Kent. Like I grew up in Gravesend and then the Memory mm-hmm. Towns. And I felt like a class traitor when I first moved here. <laughs> like I really, I mean, Whitstable hadn't gentrified as much as it has now. Like it's really gentrified now and there's nowhere I could afford to to have moved here now. 
But I, like, even as it was, like, it had a few nice little places to go to. Yeah. And I I felt intensely uncomfortable for the longest time. And, like, uh-huh. I had to almost, like, defend a kind of working class position for mm-hmm. everybody else that those people didn't know. I. It's hard to even, it sounds just ridiculous as I say it, but I, I almost didn't feel like... I deserved this place. It, mm-hmm. it felt like too, like too fancy. Yeah, that's the truth of it. It felt too fancy for me. I felt like I didn't, I didn't belong. And I also, like I used to get like maybe invited to parties or whatever. I suddenly realised that like I couldn't master the middle class sense of humour. <laughs> <laughs> that like I, the way you talk to each other in Chatham is that you take the piss of each other. Like that's like no oh one God. is allowed. I mean, that's what you do. <laughs> Like and, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And if anyone starts to go on about themselves, you take them down a peg a bit. Um, you yeah. can't do that here. Oh my God. I just, oh my God, I offended so many people when I first moved here. <laughs> like I I totally like I totally, totally get it. Like I like Dublin and like particularly the part of Dublin like grew up in, like is the the humor is like what people expect from a social situation from a social situation. Yeah extremely yeah. different um and it does feel weird like, part, part part of the reason um I left Ireland was because I was like I need to be around other black people like I need right. to like not be like a yeah. black girl yeah. um but then I found myself like at university and so I found myself around there actually were very few black people at my university and I just like when I moved over here and I just found myself around like very upper middle class yes upper class white English people and I was just like oh this is a whole different yeah (laughs) like vibe (laughs) I don't know (laughs) and it it, I mean yeah let's do an anthropology of the uh the British white upper middle classes but (laughs) you know I'd spent all my childhood because I knew I was going to go to university and I knew that was going to be a change and I'd I'd really paid attention to all those discussions of manners and I knew that you called it a napkin and not a serviette and that you said sofa instead of settee and you said like lunch instead of dinner and you didn't say front room you said you know all of that kind of thing I'd learned Uh all of that but nobody talked about the humour and the like and the way that social conventions about how you talk about yourself was so different and I it took me a decade at least to master it. I could not understand why these people talked about their children like they were like these little gods that nobody was allowed to die. Whereas where I come from, you insult your children. Like that's what you do. Like, yeah, this idiot over here. You know, like that's that was the convention as I was growing up, like a very warm convention, not people being mean to their children, but you wouldn't overrate your children to other people because it would be like a failure of humility, I guess, if I was... Yeah gonna say it does I feel like I'm rambling here but but yeah it's it's so like the belong what I'm trying to say is that belonging is not just about landscape it's it's about the the peopling of that landscape and how that there's these tiny things that you can transgress without even knowing it yeah no like like I what you're saying completely resonates and I think like one of the things that I that I miss like most about about Dublin is yeah, it's like the it's like the culture. It's like the sensibilities, mm. the perspective, the sense of humor, and also actually the way people speak to each other. Like the importance that is placed 
on crack uh, on um, <laughs> yeah, like I was like obviously I mean crack like the fun yeah yeah yeah, yeah sorry c-r-a-i-c c-r-a-i-c um yeah but like yeah on 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 that and then also like just on people just very witty like kind of like fast paced I guess like the closest thing you'd say would be like banter but people like really like slagging each other off like do you know what yeah, I mean? yeah yeah in a way that sometimes yeah. when I go home now I'm actually like that side of me is has become kind of dulled like it's not like sharp the way it used <laughs> you can't to be take it anymore. But I'm kind of like <laughs> and I'm kind of like what hang on have I just like what are they are they is that, are they taking the piss or have I just been like like seriously like insulted and then I'm like oh no god I've been I've been in England too long <laughs> yeah and also the first time I asked a middle-class person how's your mum they were like do you know my mum I was like no of course I don't that's just what you ask like isn't it (laughs) yeah wow that's uh (laughs) I feel like probably a lot of people listening to this are understanding me for the first time now Um, (laughs) let's move on from my social incompetence um but but actually this I, I think this is a neat segue to I've noticed your writing lately has been so much about class and about economic disadvantage, I guess. And it's actually, it's so refreshing to read your analysis of it because I don't think it comes across very often in our culture, actually, that, you know, people really talking about the the, the disadvantages that still massively linger and the way that we're connected by disadvantage sometimes rather than by other things it's mm-hmm. I does it does it feel invisible to you I, it feels to me like we're losing that discourse and that it's almost kind of out of fashion a little oh yeah we're t- we're totally losing it which is like very convenient <laughs> for the status quo yeah 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 and um in and, and for power actually um and I feel like with the emphasis being on other aspects of identity. And then again, there's like the idea that, you know, the class isn't necessarily an identity. It's actually like a, a social, a social position, mm-hmm. <laughs> a social positioning. Of course, there's like, there are classed cultures, you know, that exist, but it's not solely a culture or an identity. It's also like a kind of, it's also like a structural position. And yeah. um, that is um, not really engaged with in the kind yeah. of intersection of different identities that are, that are prominent where emphasis and attention is placed. And I feel that um, like race and class often overlap and, you know, race, I write a lot about how race was invented and the motivations behind the, the introduction of the idea of a white race and a black race, even Mm -hmm. though the language used at the time uh, this is in the 17th century and like English colonial Barbados was, it wasn't called the, the, the black race then, but the idea of there being these two um, distinctly different races and kind of a white race that was inherently, um, yeah. allegedly like inherently superior um, was in many ways, part of the motivation behind that was to enshrine and protect class interests and Mm. I always find it like really interesting that the first slave codes that um we see that are the first um example we have of um the notion of a white race and a a black race being like you know codified into law the first time that happens is in um yeah colonial Barbados in 1661 and it's based on it's it's a response to this series of uprisings that um, 
that happens on the island where like indentured Irish um, servants and um, kidnapped Africans are coming together to attack Mm. the English landlords who they see as a common enemy because the notion of race hasn't yet been introduced. I was I just to pause there, like when I read that, I thought it's so hard to imagine now, isn't yeah. it? To, yeah. So it was very effective. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's been really effective and really compelling. And it seems so natural to our understanding, but it wasn't just to like put massive emphasis on this, that wasn't always there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's not the way it's been for kind of like most of like human existence. And you see the same thing in um in colonial Virginia as well, where indentured English, indentured English servants and kidnapped Africans yes, come yes. together and they um there's a rebellion called Bacon's Rebellion, where they fight again the the elite class of landowners and lawmakers. And again, those two exploited populations who are comprised of people who will soon begin to understand themselves as black and white can see the landlord Mm. class as a common enemy. But what happens after race is invented is those class solidarities is essentially what they were become overridden by racial identity where people who are racialized as white, even if they are exploited by a particular class of people, if they are also white people, they see more of a shared identity based on whiteness rather than based on um, their kind of class or structural mm-hmm. structural position. And then the other thing that I think really informs my writing is, or my, 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 my thinking about class is that I grew up in like a very working class part of Dublin. And um, I just thought that, I just felt so strongly that like a lot of the, And I very much mean the kind of liberal mainstream social media type of anti-racism that is like very popular and dominant at the moment. When they are speaking about white people, I'm like, this doesn't seem like it maps onto the realities or the experiences or is going to resonate at all with like kind of the white people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That you grew up with. with. Yeah. 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 (laughs) So No, absolutely. I'm just interrupting you for a moment to ask if you'd consider subscribing to my Patreon. Friends of the Wintering Sessions get an extended edition of the podcast a day early, the chance to put questions to my guests, a monthly bonus episode and exclusive discounts on my courses and events. Most of all, you help to keep the podcast running. To find out more, go to patreon.com forward slash Catherine May. Do take a look. Now back to the show. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. It always really strikes me that because, like, I've changed social class. Like, I'm definitely middle class now. My son is definitely, definitely middle class. I mean, mm-hmm. he pronounces the T in Waitrose, which I, I, can't, I still can't. I find it really hard to even do that. <laughs> <laughs> but I can see the difference in my social capital and my power now in that I can say things and people listen to them. Like people people hear me when I speak and I don't think the mainstream discourse understands just how powerless that group of people is. Like they don't have connections to anyone that might even help them. Like it, like I, I don't think the middle class can imagine not knowing a journalist somewhere along the line or something like that. It's so far back from the understanding. Yeah, it's really. Yeah, no, com, com, completely. And it's those networks and those connections. And that's kind of what yeah. I'm saying about it being like an actual kind of position, like a, a position yeah. rather than just um, an identity. It's where you're kind of structurally Absolutely, positioned yeah. In, yeah. In, in society. Um, you don't have those networks. You don't have that access, which is the basis of, you know, kind of social mobility or like career careers and career progression. Mm-hmm. Um in this country and yeah, in, in, in many places. And I also think class in terms of just the idea that it's kind of like, so that's why the, the strikes that are happening, like at the moment, I find labor movements so interesting because when you think about like people power and, you know, since 2020, there have been these conversations. I mean, they've been happening for a long time, but really, really like kind of mainstream, um, widespread zeitgeisty conversations about how can we enact change and people, Mm. you know, protest or or make a lot of noise online and nothing really changes. Nothing happens. Um, Yeah. Nothing happens. And when you think about where real effect, real change has been created, it's often been, you know, one of the, one of the, one of the kind of few sites where people power can be demonstrated is through striking, is through organizing. Exactly, exactly. And if you have no class analysis and you're not thinking about labor and you're not kind of thinking about workers, you're not going to focus on that kind of organizing. Your emphasis is going to be on uh, in other places. And those other places often don't prove as effective in bringing about any change because they're performative and symbolic. It means we think we're organizing, but we're organizing ineffectively. Like we're using up so much of our time and energy getting upset with each other online. Mm -hmm. And then not we're doing something. <laughs> yeah, it does. It well, it does feel like occupation, doesn't it? It's really it, it's been such a theme of the conversations in this season of the wintering sessions that everybody's like very disenchanted with particularly Twitter, which I think for a long time felt really effective. And I, you know, like that's not to be too harsh on it because actually it was an effective way of gathering, but the gathering itself doesn't impact anyone that isn't on Twitter mm-hmm. and I think we're beginning to see the huge problem that that's caused us because we yeah. are, have got ourselves really tangled up in ineffective protest if that, if that feels so blunt to say that but I think it's probably true yeah and I I am um, recently um read a really amazing book that named some of these processes that I've found so troubling <laughs> recently 
And it's called um, Elite Capture, how the powerful took over identity politics and and everything else. But it's quite interesting because the author is talking about the elites of marginalized groups Mm. and how, again, it is this like, you know, conflation of race, race and class. So people that do belong to groups that are, you know, not the dominant kind of white male middle class, but within those groups, they constitute, there's power within groups, you know, they, the people Mm -hmm. who kind of constitute the elites of those other groups, and it might be a class position, might be a class privilege, or actually I'm trying to avoid privilege. Um, (laughs) It might be a class position or it might be, he also talks about like, you know, in the attention economy, like a new class of people who are, who really control attention because of a social Mm -hmm. media following, for instance, and how their priorities, you know, might be very different from the priorities of somebody who's maybe in the same group as them, but isn't on social media is, or, or, you know, it's just, it doesn't actually really care about Hollywood representation or some of these demands where all of the kind of attention has been focused, but is actually, you know, actually needs access to kind of just the, 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 the basic requirements that people to have like um to have like a decent a decent quality of living but those voices we don't hear from those people they don't come to the fore and so the set of priorities even with marginalized groups are determined often by people you know who have power and access and privilege within Mm. those groups and who are doing it for them yeah when you paused at using the word privilege (laughs) Well, no, I I know exactly what you mean. And I've been a bit troubled by the kind of announcing of white privilege that happens between white people like me. And it's almost like that kind of packages it up. And we've done that now. I think like we we do it at the beginning of every online event. And and Mm -hmm. someone will say, well, of course, as a white privileged person, and we all go, "Mm, yes. And it that feels like action, you know, and of course it isn't. And it, it just struck me as you as you stumbled on that word that one of the things that social media does is it uses up words really quickly and taints them. And so whereas once a, a term like white privilege would have had enduring power for, for maybe a decade or more, and it would have been like a useful term that we could have like worked with, mm-hmm. it, it gets burnt up really, really fast. And becomes just cliched and and, and and completely emptied out of of any meaning so quickly. And that's one of the things that makes activism really difficult as well, I think, that the terminology is so unstable and the rallying grows are so unstable. And the sense of <laughs> the sense of what we're arguing about at the moment is unstable. Mm-hmm. And having everybody's opinion all at once means that everything decomposes very, very quickly and and, and kind of political ardor just burns itself out. Absolutely. I, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. And even like from the perspective of, of, of writing, like I can't bear to use certain words just because you know mm. they're 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 just so they're just so they're so cliched. And there's certain forms of there's kind of predetermined stock phrases and buzzwords that are not only expected, but demanded of one to use. And I'm like, no, <laughs> like I, I refuse to, to use this, to, to be forced to use this language. So like there's, there's a lot of very stock words in the kind of online liberal mainstream uh, anti-racist lexicon. And I really yeah. try to avoid 
using really any of them in my writing. And I'm saying like, yeah, even from kind of like the, the, the perspective of just having a love of language. Like, just so it feels fresh. Yeah. But, but I don't think people hear stuff if you don't use different language. I mean, I, you know, like my background's more in like autism awareness and, and rights. And, you know, I've seen exactly the same thing that we we all end up using the same language over and over again. And the effect mm-hmm. is just deadening. You just think, I've heard that. I know that already. And, and and the brain just skips over it. There's nothing interesting there anymore because we've said it. But of course, that person that's used that language might be talking about something really, really urgently well, important yeah. that's happening to a real human being. And I don't, but I don't know what to do about that. This is like my big human question at the moment. Because autistic people wouldn't have been able to get together without those social media organs that have been so powerful for us to meet each other. Yeah. But they're sort of destroying us at the same time and they're making us very, very tired in a way that I don't think we've ever experienced before. That fatigue with self-advocacy and activism that comes from doing it as like a full-time job almost. Well, I think it's about like recognizing the the utility in these platforms or methods because as you've mm. just described, there there is a lot, you know. <laughs> but lot, yeah. being very aware of of not only their limitations, but also their capacity to do damage yeah. as well, you know? And to create infighting. Like it's it's easier oh, to infight than it is to focus on what really needs to be done like it, it's so simple to just go well I didn't like it when you said that right you know <laughs> you just you just see fights breaking out all over the internet every day between people that are aligned but a lot of that is because well so there's the narcissism of like small differences but then that's like turbocharged as well by the fact that like this concept of like clout rage and you know calling people out and these kind of sassy, I'm speaking truth to power takes are, or not even like actually more divisive than that, like actually kind of, kind of witch hunts and like, you know, pylons on people and stuff that is actually like really incentivized, um, yeah. particularly in somewhere like Twitter, you know, that's the, the highly emotive yeah, content absolutely. is what accrues likes and shares and therefore like more influence. So people are actually incentivized to be divisive. You know, it's kind of like a politics of competition rather than than one of solidarity. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Who's who's the most outraged? Who's the most offended? That's seen as like a, a position of triumph. And it it's just unconstructive, I think. Well, who has the most followers, but a great yeah. way to prove followers <laughs> yeah. is through outrage. Yeah, yeah. And, tw- and Twitter, <laughs> I mean, I know that if I say something angry on Twitter, I will get five times the retweets that if I say something just pleasantly observational. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, oh, <here> everyday <laughs> life. <laughs> here we are. Hi. It's looking for your outrage because that's so contagious. And the problem is that it has such a personal effect on the person that is outraged. And it, it just, I, what I'm saying is I feel guilty that I, I'm always scooting off to Instagram for like some nice pictures. And I, I feel terrible <laughs> about that. But there's there's this real bounce that I experience that's like, I can't, I can't take this anymore. I can't deal with it. The world is so outrageous. Like, what do we do with that? I don't know. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I spend very little. I think for me, Twitter feels like a real hotbed of it. So I, I spend yeah. very little time on the Twitter streets. And honestly, like I read, I read like a lot of, I read like a lot of theory. I mean, I've been doing a PhD for like a really long time. So yeah. that kind of um, <laughs> is why I have to be doing that. But I, I also read like, yeah, a lot of theory in like the, the, the black radical tradition, which is something that I talk about quite a lot. And mm. I actually find that such an antidote to the kind of reactive one dimensional outraged hot takes yeah it's really yeah, like yeah. rigorous generous radical i say yeah rigorous and radical and and actually quite generous and generative tradition you know with kind of like deep with deep thinking happening. yeah absolutely as well as organizing absolutely I mean it's an incredibly scholarly tradition yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) um so yeah I find quite I I find that like a real antidote to kind of like social media race discourse Mm. does this put you in conflict and opposition with people that you, you know that really is your kind of team ultimately you know is that offensive to people for you to say that or does it fit very comfortably into a kind of wide-ranging discourse it should be the latter <laughs> is it <laughs> yeah like do you know I don't know like I have seen I'm not necessarily um speaking like about me directly but I have seen people mm. who you know say oh well or like oh, that it's elitist to say that people should be like engaging with some of these texts and my response to that is like I think of like the Black Panthers and I think of them as being you know very very like working class like black people from like Oakland in the 1960s immigrants from the south and they're reading like Nietzsche and Plato so I'm like I I don't know (laughs) you know I don't believe it's elitist to read I feel like it's kind of elitist to say that reading's elitist, but (laughs) might be be where it becomes convoluted. Well, when you think about that headline in The Sun yesterday that that actually kind of mocked builders for saying that they, uh, I think that they were reading and that they were in touch with their emotions. Shutting bacon sandwiches. Yeah. They were woke. (laughs) Yes, that's it. Woke builders. They're woke because they're slightly educated and they're in touch with their emotions. And That was it, yeah. That's that's like a, a really obvious example of using like education against working class people like you're not allowed to reach out and learn stuff like you must stay down I really I really yeah no it's it's actually it's actually no it's actually obscene yes I'm Mm -hmm. so glad that you brought that up because um yeah I I saw that to like much mirth and hysteria the other day but it's actually (laughs) endemic of something like you know, far more, more pernicious. And I think that's kind of more of like a recent development. I don't mean just since social media, but maybe kind of recent in the past, I don't know, mm. few decades, because there are very strong, like working class, like, you know, socialist traditions, for instance, where people would be reading like lots of, lots of theory and like lots of books that like, you know, seem that, 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 that are dense and yeah. very, very like engaged in international solid solidarity and kind of the socio-economic mm-hmm. climate in like other parts in in other parts of the world and have like a really kind of strong knowledge of yeah. international relations. And I think increasingly there's been this idea that actually no that's that's not that's not for work that's not for working class people. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um which is like yeah like deeply it's real like stay in your place. 
it's deeply offensive. And I, I think it comes from both sides of the political spectrum as well. You know, I, I think the Labour Party has become an incredibly middle class organisation. And I don't think everybody in there understands that working class people, uh, you know, are capable of that kind of thought. And it it's really, oh, I've depressed myself again. But yeah, yeah it's, <laughs> we, we need a class analysis more than ever, is what I'm saying. <laughs> Yeah, completely. Actually, this is a good moment to ask a question that um, one of my patrons sent in because it fits just right here. Um, it's from Sarah Horner. Um, and she asked, and I, I think this is such a pertinent question. Are podcasts uh-oh, like Blind Boy, The Rest is Politics, Revolutions and so on, building an opportunity for critical thinking? Or are they just another echo chamber for a small number of people who already agree? And she says, I want to be optimistic that they're an indicator of our appetite for real insight. But in daily life with real people, I'm not seeing it. (laughs) I don't know if you know those podcasts. Yeah, no, I do. I've um, I've been on Blind Boy um, a couple of times. Um, He's a friend of mine. And I feel that, yeah, so for instance, I feel that like when I speak to like Irish guys who'd be, you know, kind of the generation like, below me for instance like actually not 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 just men like pe- like people generally but I'm gonna actually just focus on men for a second the way they kind of like the way a lot of them like kind of like think about like their identity as men and about masculinity and stuff has like shifted mm-hmm. so much I feel that is like because my male friends wouldn't have been able to talk about certain express themselves maybe like you know in those in those kind of ways and I think that is in large part because of of a cultural shift that you know a lot of it has been expressed through social media and a lot of it has been expressed through through podcasts and men talking about like yeah I guess like they're like their emotions and like their their identity and and mental health yeah yeah in ways that like wouldn't have been permissible like when I was a teenager or even in my 20s. Yeah. When you think about the cultural shift that's been happening in our lifetime, I mean, you know, men attending births, for example, that my dad's generation didn't do that. Like that's... Oh God, yeah. My dad wasn't even in the country like when I was born. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I think I'd avoid it that much again, but, uh, you know, and and like, yeah, the, the conversations we're having about gender, the conversations we're having about sexuality, the conversations about parenting, about housework, about who earns the money, like, Every part of our culture has been exploded and I don't think we all realise all the time just how much we're in the middle of that explosion. And a lot of that stuff has yet to fully settle Mm -hmm. and it's therefore no wonder everything feels so up for grabs and, and uncomfortable. But I... I can't, I'm such an optimistic person. I can't help it. I do think that discomfort is a sign of something good gradually happening, not straightforwardly, you know, but the fact that it still hasn't set yet is a very, very good thing indeed. Because if we all felt culturally certain, I think we'd be regretting a lot of those certainties in 50 years time you know, in the way that we look back at the cultural certainties of the 50s, and they now look horrifying, actually. They now, you know, relied on a lot of unspoken oppression. I also feel like when, like, I'm really interested in like a lot of um, 60s and late, late late 60s and kind of early 70s movements. And if you look at like kind of the progress that was seemingly 
made. I mean, there was progress made, but then I think about how attitudes were like when I was growing up in the nineties, like they were dreadful. And it's just like, where did all that progressiveness go? And I feel like the pendulum can just swing. I feel like we can't rest on our laurels because it is all kind of up for grabs, but I feel like it could actually, I see like very conservative, like, and anti-progressive tendencies also that are very strong as well. So yeah, yeah. I just don't know. But I, I, I'm like, I, I think my my natural. I am. I think I'm an. Op, I think I'm an optimistic person as well. Yeah. Um, but I also think we will kind of. We might kind of resolve microaggressions, and by the time we've done that, the world will be like. <laughs> We'll be too hot. To we'll be moved. We'll be too hot to be aggressive to each other. So we'll just we'll be just, all yeah. tired. <laughs> well, we won't, the Earth won't be able to sustain human life, so it won't matter. So yeah, I don't. So yeah, I think like that. That the the I think the stuff with the environment, you know, is kind of pretty pressing. And then sometimes I see like the navel gazing, kind of infighting of people who actually, you know, kind of you would think would be able to see themselves as not only, not even just allies, but actually the, like fighting for like the same thing. Yeah. Um, and I just feel a bit like, oh, but then yeah, I look at like, for like I, I'm looking at those movements that organizing with like the Amazon, uh, the Amazon workers and all the left wing governments that are coming into power in like Latin America and South America and the recent um, election in Colombia, where it has its like first left wing president who's like a former gorilla um and then the vice president is um like the first black woman who's ever been um had that position in colombia and if she if it was just a black woman that was the the vice president of colombia but she was like a raging conservative like i wouldn't be celebrating that as a win but it's a black woman who's also like a a strongly leftist black woman so yes it's a very leftist government and i think things like that like feel which is it's committed to like their kind of stated aims or that there will be no kind of like for for equality and like and no repression Mm. um Mm. these are the stated aims and like I don't know how achievable that that will be in our current kind of like well it's a global system but (laughs) (laughs) but then you know maybe I, I think you know I think we in the west forget that there is a global picture here and that I you know the despair I feel about the the direction politics is going is actually quite specifically European and America and North American. And Ireland is a bit of a shining light in that. Yeah. Tell us about <laughs> Ireland. I, you know, I don't think everyone always notices though. Yeah, no. Yeah, I know. Like I literally have people ask me, they were like, but how is it a different country? And I'm just mm. like, what are you like? Like yeah. I've honestly had people like ask me that question and I'm just like, I don't know how to answer it. <laughs> like I was France, a different country. What are you talking about? Mm. Um, so yeah, there's a, there can be like a weird, like ownership, I guess, <laughs> like over Ireland, you know, people being surprised. Yeah. currency. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Um, <laughs> Ireland, Ireland has, yeah, just kind of emerged as it's, it's so funny. Cause when I, when I left, it was still like very, like socially conservative and 
London especially, you know, seemed like so liberatory and just like kind of yeah. like, like light years ahead. And it's like there's been like a reversal and, you know, kind of through kind of like, yeah, kind of mass movements and organizing. Ireland has just like changed, like, you know, brought in like a lot of new legislation around pretty like draconian <laughs> laws yeah. that we had. But there just seems to be a real like, yeah, I don't know, this generation is just really like, no, like we're not having all of this like super like repressive mm-hmm. kind of bullshit that has kind of determined um, de- 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 determined life and culture here. Our life, yeah, de- de- determined life and culture, I guess, for, for so long. And I love that. It makes me yeah. so excited. Honestly, I, I feel like I was a generation Z teenager <laughs> like just very badly misplaced I would have been so at home right now <laughs> I'd have been yeah, so I happy I'd have been TikTok you know <laughs> rather than a really stupid old lady TikTok which is what I've just developed <laughs> like uh, you know me not doing dances <laughs> just I, I love I love TikTok but like I actually just don't have the he- I don't have the headspace like, yeah I wish I was 16 because I would have the headspace it would be amazing if you were 16 I know. I had such bad social anxiety, you know, but I would have been able to like, to, to express my like sense of humor, like to an audience without having to engage with anyone. It would have been great. Yeah. I, God, I I could talk about TikTok forever at the moment because I'm, I've just got interested in it and I, I am learning so much there. It is so much more global than any media I've ever encountered before and so much more diverse and, Isn't that, I mean, let, let's end on a note of optimism, but that feels like the future to me. It really does. It feels like young people are flooding into these spaces that are a genuine mixing pot. Like the term mixing pot is another term that just yeah. itself out. But here is an actual cauldron that things are being, ideas are being thrown into and they're all sitting quite comfortably alongside each other. And you can spend half an hour on there and learn some stuff about other people that you just did not know. And I love that. Yeah, I think that's like like in- incredibly, incredibly exciting. And um, mm. I don't think I've engaged with it like as much as um, I would <laughs> like to. No, 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 no. But what, what you're saying, I've had like quite a few peers, you know, of of, of, of my kind of age who are you know, not big into social media at all and actually yeah. find like, you know, a lot of Instagram, the way people are on Instagram quite like, um, quite like, quite, they find it like quite cringy. Yeah. Um, being like, oh no, like TikTok is actually like really cool. Um, yeah. And just people speaking like, yeah, like ve- people whose opinions I like respect speaking like very highly of it when they're not social media people really at all mm, mm, and so mm. I think I really do need to explore it but I just like I just I don't have headspace I'm like I can't handle, no, I I can't handle another app too many other things that's <laughs> when my publisher suggested I was like not another thing and then I obsessed over it for about two weeks and can't leave it alone now it just it feels it feels punk actually it's very oh, yeah DIY it's, yeah it's like it's really unesthetic like it's the anti-instagram Mm, that's what I yeah. that's the joy of it like people doing really scrappy stuff that's that's intelligent and that 
the kind of the quality of it lies in something other than prettiness. And oh my god, you've got me hype now. I'm like, <laughs> we finished talking. I'm a convert. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Emma, thank you. I I would just carry on talking for like the next three hours, so like I will have to stop. I think we should just do a series where we just put the world to rights and just carry on like week by week. But um, it's been amazing to talk to you. Thank you so, so much. Um, and I know everyone's going to love listening to you. So, yeah, thank you. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for um, thanks for having me. We didn't even get into sea swimming. Ah. <laughs> So I decided to have a little slice of lemon in my tea for old time's sake. Just the smallest sliver. It's like a little crescent moon floating in the top of my tea. Smells great. It's so funny how these things comfort us, but also how often we deny ourselves those comforts when we're at our most distressed and our most worried. If I can do anything for this world through writing wintering I hope it will be to convince people that they're not obliged to increase their own suffering when they're already suffering that you don't show solidarity for people in need by making your life painful instead It's about acknowledging that suffering comes round to all of us. Sometimes we all get our turn. And we do all we can to comfort ourselves in those times. We do everything, always, to live the best life we can. And that gives us the strength and the level of calm that's required to go out and fight in this world for the things that are necessary and for the compassion that we need to give. So I'm going to keep on making jasmine tea. And I was thinking while I was making it that um, I learned to use that teapot for another purpose quite quickly (laughs) in my first weeks at university I uh, I learned to make whiskey tea as well in that in that big teapot, uh, which is whiskey and tea and sugar and lemons. And I realised that I became a lot more popular when I started pouring cups of that than when I just stuck to the jasmine. <laughs> it's really funny to think about it. I know my grandma had told me that she used to occasionally like a little slug of whiskey in her tea, although I never once saw her take it. And I thought, well, okay, I've always been an inventive soul. So whiskey tea is sometimes a thing for me and my friends now. It's definitely, definitely a way to bring a sense of dazed calm to your afternoon if it's your kind of thing. (sighs) I feel like I'm having to do a lot of breathing out at the moment very deliberately but you know me I'm always optimistic I'm always hopeful I'm hopeful because every single person that I'm talking to at the moment is 
saying enough is enough. And I'm so ready for that, you know. My postie knocked on the door today and after she'd given the dog a biscuit, as she does every day, the dog loves her, um, she just started talking about her working conditions and how difficult things are for people in her job at the moment and how childcare is a massive factor that, you know, they're struggling to plan around childcare because of working hours getting changed. And she said, I just wanted to tell you that because I think we'll be going on strike too. And I want all of you people to understand why, because I don't think the message will get across in the news. And I just... I'm just so full of admiration for her to stand and do that, to come and tell the people that she has casual chats with every day exactly where she's coming from and where her hardships lie and to say it face to face in a way that we don't do enough. You know, it's socially awkward to go from those really light casual chats that she and I have while I'm signing for something or, you know, when she's petting the dog that are very superficial and very deliberately so. It takes such steel to say, I just need to tell you something about my situation that's going to illuminate a world for you that I know you don't understand. And wow, that is what we're all going to have to start doing in this world. To say gently, respectfully, I disagree and here's why and here's my perspective and here's what I know that you may not know and here's what I've experienced. It's not easy, lovelies. I hope you're all okay. Take enormous care of yourselves. And we're in it together. Thank you to everyone who helped make this podcast possible. To my brilliant Patreon community. To Buddy the producer. And Megan the convener. We've been talking a lot lately about how we shift this podcast to meet the needs of the world that's coming And I think we're going to take a little break over the summer and replay some brilliant old episodes. We're going to come back slightly different, but still, I think it'll be wonderful. But the world's changing and we need to change a little bit too. Thanks so much to Emma Dabbery, whose books are available wherever you get your books. Uh, But there are links to her books and her socials in the episode description so do check her out she's a wonder and thank you all i'll see you very soon bye
the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 